keys are? Take your keys, man. That's all right. Yeah, no problem. <clears throat> so, I'm going to make sure to keep my clock up here because I've been told in no uncertain terms not to go too long. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, when, what? Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah. Um, so when, you know, Will and uh, Glenn asked me to introduce the book of Exodus, and so this is going to be like a little bit less of like your typical sermon and more of an introduction to the book of Exodus. So um, the, the thing about the Bible, uh, I tell my students this a lot, um, is it's, it's the true story of everything. So we are storied people. When we talk about, uh, when we meet someone new, we say things like, where are you from? What do you do? Who are you married to? How many children do you have? And, you know, we tell stories about ourselves to communicate to others who we are. Um, and we use stories to make sense of who we are also, right? Um, one of the things that Britt learned about me quickly as she's learned more and more of my story, uh, I grew up uh, in an abusive family. And so certain things, when certain things happen, I get like really upset instantly, you know? And she knows like, oh yeah, that's because it reminds him of XYZ or whatever, because she knows my story. And so she's better able to understand who I am. Well, what I want to do today is um, we're obviously going to be looking at the book of Exodus in the coming um, months, um, but I kind of want to take a big, broad view of the whole story of the Bible, because Exodus is a key part of this story, uh, the story of who we are. Whenever um, we tell our, our boys Bible stories, uh, of course, Ari you know, is the only one who can communicate that he understands what, what's going on. I, I say, you know, Adam and Eve, our first parents did this. Our ancestor, Abraham, this. Moses, our father, did this. Um, because this is a story of who we are. If we are Christians, we're grafted into this family. Um, and the Bible tells us the story of that family. And the story of the Bible, as you guys know, starts out in um, creation. Um, and we find out in creation who God is, who we are, and why we're here, right? Um, in the ancient Near East, in the worldview of the Bible... It is this radically different story that God has presented, okay? So there's something called, if you guys will bear with me, there's something called the Atrahasis Epic, and there's a couple of other epics that tell creation stories, and in these creation stories, you have all come, a lot of gods like warring and fighting against each other, and um, the Atrahasis Epic is one of my favorites because um, the lower gods, called the EGG gods, get upset because they're tired of doing all the work for the upper gods. And so this one guy says, let's make humans so that we can, so that we don't have to do, so that we don't have to be the upper god slaves. Humans will be their slaves. And this is like the best part of the story. Everyone's like, yeah, that's a great idea. So they kill him and make humans out of him. <laughs> so um, anyway, uh, so in that story, in these narratives, in the creation stories of the ancient Near East where the Bible is set, um, 
the humans were created to, as slaves to the gods. And so the Bible comes along and says, actually, the true story of your life is that you were created by God uh, out of love and to live in a relationship with him. He gave you this garden of Eden. He put you there to tend it, to keep it, and to live in a relationship with him. So imagine, imagine for a moment if all you ever knew, the only story about yourself that you knew, was that you were a slave. You were created. All of your family was created as slaves to provide for gods, right? And then all of a sudden, someone came along and said, you're not a slave. You're the crowning achievement of all of creation, and God made you to know and love him and to be his image bearer, to do what God does in this world. It's a radically different story of who you are, and that changes um, how you see yourself and how you interact with the world. So that is the story uh, that the Bible is telling about people. And of course, you guys know the next part of the story is that sin enters, our ancestors commit uh, sin, they choose to eat from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, um, and this story takes a really important turn in Genesis 3.15. I'll just read this. It's from New Living Translation, so don't call me a liberal. From now on, you and the woman will be enemies. It's talking about the, the serpent. And your offspring and her offspring will be enemies. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So this verse, Genesis 3.15, is the thesis of the whole rest of the Bible. It all comes down to who is going to be, who is going to crush the serpent's head. That's what the whole rest of the Old Testament was about, and that's what the New Testament, that's where Christ is fulfilled in this. And the reason I'm doing this whole overview of the story is because Exodus is a key part of this story. And we, what, what my challenge, I guess, to the church and to us is that we see the story of the Exodus as our own story um, because God is still delivering his people. Um, so Genesis 3.15, and it'll come, This will, I'll show how Exodus relates to this. Um, the head crusher is going to come and crush the head of the serpent, okay? And so there's all this tension built up. Imagine for a second that you've never read the Bible, that you have no idea who Jesus is, um, and all you have is this promise that someone is going to come and finally crush the serpent's head and put an end to evil, okay? So Eve um, gets this promise and bears a son, Cain. And you guys remember what she said? By the Lord's help, I have born a son, right? I've gotten a son, she says, or gotten a man. Um, And this, she thinks, maybe this is the fulfillment, right? Maybe this is the person who's going to crush the serpent's head. Of course, we know he crushes his brother's head instead. Um, And so we wonder, is it going to be Seth? Um, so the other day, uh, speaking of crushing heads, uh, Brit's like over there looking the other day, I look outside and uh, Ari and I mean Abel and Peyton were playing and then Peyton picks up this big rock like this and I was like, if your son is named Abel and his older brother picks up a big rock, you got to get on that fast, <laughs> you know? All right, so, so it's not going to be Cain and so we go to the next person uh, and this is the story of who we are. It's not going to be Seth. Uh, she thinks, okay, maybe we'll have this godly line, Seth, right? He replaces Abel. Um, but he goes on and dies. Um, the next big figure is Noah, right? God sees Noah, and he sees him in him righteousness. Everyone else, you know, the whole world is um, 
not doing good. Um, there's murder and violence and everything's as bad as you think it can be, but Noah is righteous. And so God rescues Noah and his family, and we think, okay, maybe Noah is going to crush the serpent's head. Remember, we don't know. Like, if you don't know who Jesus is, you don't know this whole story. If you're reading the Bible for the first time, you think, okay, maybe it's going to be Noah. What's Noah do when he gets off the boat? He gets really drunk, right? And then there's some, some stuff happens with his son in the tent. Noah doesn't make the cut. He's not going to be able to crush the serpent's head. Um, next is Abraham, right? And we think, okay, God calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans, you know, and says, okay, come and worship me. Abraham does. He is obedient. He leaves everything he's ever known uh, and moves to this land, this, prom- this land of Canaan, right? But along the way, he lies about Sarah being his wife and says, you know, gives her to another king and is like, you know, not a big deal. She's actually my sister. Um, he lies about that, not once but twice. And um, this, this endangers this promise of the Messiah, right? God has spoken to Abraham and said, look, I'm going to give you a son. Abraham doesn't have any children, and he has no problem giving his wife to someone else. And then um, on top of that, he, you know, Sarah gets this idea like, well, I can't have children. She's like 75 years old, so go ahead and have Hagar, sleep with Hagar, and that's how we'll get this promised child, you know. And so we find out Abraham, he keeps messing things up too. Um, he ends up dying, of course, and even though he's um, this paragon of faith, there's still these moments in his life where he doubts. He's not going to be able to crush the serpent's head. Abraham's son Isaac did the same thing as Abraham in terms of like trying to pass his wife off as his sister. Um, he can't resist this temptation um, to sin. Uh, Jacob is my favorite character in the Bible, and he's like the worst character in the Bible too. Here's a guy, he... Um, manipulates his brother out of his birthright you know imagine you know coming home so hungry and your brother's like yeah I mean I made this food and you can have it if you give me the authority to be the head of the family you know when you die or not when you die but when our dad dies he does that he steals Jacob he steals the inheritance Um, he and his mom concoct this plan right to take things take the inheritance from Esau he tricks his father um he lies to esau whenever they finally get reunited he's like oh yeah go ahead and go on and i'll catch up with you later and he doesn't um he kid- he kidnaps his all his children and um wives from laban right he runs away in the middle of the night um c- committing you know kidnapping these people such that like they'll never see their father again i mean imagine that um imagine what like how would you guys feel if someone just ran off with Molly? And I mean, this would be really bad, right? You'd be really happy about that. Oh, you'd want to fight them. That was a, not like a, that was like a that, not like a that. Yeah, okay. All right. So, <laughs> sorry. So Jacob's a terrible person. He, he's like, he is the worst father. I mean, maybe not the worst father, but he's a bad father. He has, he shows favoritism so much so that 11 brothers are like, look, we're so sick of, Joseph being the favorite, so let's go ahead and just sell him into slavery, pretend like someone killed him, or uh, you know, a wild beast killed him. And on the, to top that all off, at the very end of Jacob's life, he's still showing favoritism, right? He, he, doesn't, he never gets it, right? And yet God loved Jacob, um, but he would not be the one to crush the serpent's head. 
we think maybe it's Joseph, right? That's the next big figure. And this is bringing us up to the book of Exodus, right? Um, and Joseph ends, like, that's how the people of Israel get into Egypt. And that's where they are when we pick up with the book of Exodus. Let's see how we are in time here. Okay, so Joseph dies. Um, like, one, one of the big things, if you're going to crush the serpent's head, is you can't die because that's the, um, you know, that's his power now um, because of sin. Joseph dies, and people are in Egypt, um, and God raises up Moses. And so now we're thinking, okay, finally, God has brought this deliverer to us. Okay, that's what the people are thinking. Um, but there's only like one or a few problems with Moses. Um, what does he do before he, you know, when he, God's like, hey, you're going to deliver my people. So what's the first thing he does? He goes and commits murder, right? <laughs> it's, he's, um, you got to love that, you know? Um, and then there's that whole strange thing where he hasn't, he hasn't circumcised his son, and then Zipporah is like, here's the, you know, son of the blood of your son or whatever. Um, and read Exodus 4. It's really strange. Um, so Moses, even, even the great Moses, doesn't crush the serpent's head, right? He's the guy who leads the people out of Israel, God raises him up, and yet he's a murderer, and he's not fully obedient, and he himself doesn't even get to go to the promised land. So, there's a transition then at this point in the book of Exodus, which we'll talk about uh, you know, in the coming year, where God, instead of raising up these individual people, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, Adam, Cain, Seth, Joseph, Moses, there's this kind of transition to a people, right? In the book of Exodus, one of the most important things is that God makes a people for himself, okay? And this is the people that God leads out of slavery, right? Out of slavery in Egypt and says, okay, you are going to be the light to the world. You are going to mediate or be the go-between to show people how to have this right relationship with me. Remember, they're living in a culture where they, the culture believes a lie about who God is and about who they are. And so God establishes his people to teach everyone else the true story of everything. Um, of course, we know the rest of the story is that the people fail at this. They're not. Even the people of Israel are not going to crush the serpent's head because they keep sinning over and over and over and over. And so God raises up David, you know. And there's this significant transition with David because he says, look, I'm going to make this everlasting covenant with you and there is a Messiah who's going to come from your line. And so we think, okay, even though it's not going to be David, there is a Messiah who's coming. And this, this image and this hope for a Messiah propels God's people for the rest of history. So this is like 900 BC when this happens with uh, um, David or 1,900 BC, somewhere around in there. And for the next thousand years, they're looking forward to hoping for someone who could crush the serpent's head. Because it wasn't all these other people. They all had issues. Even David, um, right, committed murder and was an adulterer and didn't even, didn't discipline his own son. Um, and so, but the new, then the, the Old Testament ends in Malachi. And there's no uh, deliverer yet. There's still no one to crush the serpent's head. And then finally... Uh, when we get over to the New Testament, we finally realize uh, that this Jesus is, you know, the, the one 
who God called out of Egypt, the true Israel. You know, and the um, Bible says that he fulfills the prophecy, out of Egypt I called my son. And if we know our Bible, and if we've been reading, you know, been working through Exodus for the year, um, so like at the end of this sermon series, whenever you read in the New Testament, out of Egypt I called my son, you'll be like, oh yeah, the real Israel, the true Israel, the one who would bring ultimate redemption, okay? So the New Testament intentionally and clearly connects Jesus with this Exodus motif, okay, of bringing his people up out of slavery and bringing them up out of deliver, uh, out of um, to redeem them. So the book of Exodus is the story of God redeeming his people, right? And that is the story that God has been telling throughout this whole Bible, and that's the story he that I want us uh, to become part of. And so now let's go back to Exodus. So I wanted to give kind of this broad overview, not just of Exodus, but of the whole biblical narrative, because it's the true story of everything, right? It's the true story of who we are, where we came from. And as we read through Exodus, um, I hope that you will sense kind of the tension and the anticipation um, that the original readers would in thinking the question we're going to be asking is who is going to crush the serpent's head? Who is going to, and we get part of that answer, right? Part of, so Exodus is telling us there is some conquering of evil, right? The people are led out of Egypt. God does establish a relationship with them, and yet they're still looking forward to the ultimate Moses, the new Moses, right? The better mediator, the mediator of a better covenant, the better Moses, um, the one who would ultimately crush um, the serpent's head. All right, any questions? Nothing? I think it's only been like 11 or 12 minutes. So no one, you don't even have to go to seminary now. That was it right there. That's all I learned. <laughs> Okay, Exodus 2. I want to just read a couple of passages. I said I wasn't going to do like a real, a real big sermon. And then this, uh, these like Bible Project videos, I know some of you have seen them before, but I'm going to show two, or um, Ben's going to show two, and that'll kind of round things out. They're like 11 minutes, so we'll still get out of here in time. Um, two things that I think are really important in the, in the book of Exodus. So remember... The people of Israel are in Egypt, okay? They've got there by Joseph, came to Egypt. Um, he was sold into slavery, is in Egypt. And then remember the book of Egypt, or book of Genesis ends with Moses saying, look, you meant all this for, or Joseph saying, you meant all this for evil, but God meant it for good, the salvation of his people, right? And so God takes Joseph to Egypt to prepare for this famine that would come. And then God, through Joseph, brings all of the people of Israel into Egypt, okay? And this is setting up for what God promised Abraham, right? You remember he said uh, when in Genesis 12 or 15, when he makes this covenant, he says, like, there's going to be 400 years of darkness um, when your people will, will be in slavery. Um, and that's so that kind of the sin of the Canaanites can run its course over in Canaan, Okay, so all of this, all like God is setting all of this up in a really incredible, powerful way. And so what I want us to do is to embed ourselves in this story. The, um, and so we're in Egypt now. I've been there for 400 years, and the book of Exodus opens up with God 
raising up a deliverer who foreshadows or is a picture of this ultimate deliverer, Jesus Christ. Okay, Exodus 2.23. Years passed, and the king of Egypt died. But the Israelites still groaned beneath their burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and their pleas for deliverance rose up to God. God heard their cries and remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the Israelites and felt deep concern for their welfare. Okay. This is a key verse in Exodus because this book is about God remembering. Okay. Um, Ari, his middle name is Zechariah, which means Yahweh remembers. And or the Lord remembers. And we named him that, uh, Britt and I named him that, because so many times in our lives, there have been moments where it seemed like things were just di- like so difficult. I mean, like they weren't. The Lord has always provided. But we wanted Ari's name to be a monument to the fact that Yahweh does remember. Um, he remembers the covenant that he established with his people, he remembers that, you know, he remembers Christ. He remembers that Jesus died on the cross and that he sees, he sees his righteousness, not our own. Um, and Yahweh remembers. So it's more than just like, oh yeah, I remember I left my coffee right there. It's I remembered, Yahweh remembered that he had made, created a relationship with the people for the purpose of loving them and taking care of them, Right? And so when the people in Israel, or in Egypt, sorry, the Israelites are groaning under this weight of slavery, um, the uh, making extra, you know, making bricks with no clay, all of this, and they cry out. When God hears their cry and remembers his covenant, it's so much more than just, like I said, oh yeah, I remember that I left my keys in the car. It's, I remember that I made, created this relationship and I'm going to act a certain way because of it. And I wish I could just like, I don't know, like break everyone's heads open and like stuff this down in there um, because it's so crucial. If we're going to believe the truth, the true story about everything, the story that God tells us about who we are, um, we have to like know deep in our hearts like God remembers. Even when it seems like we've been in slavery for 400 years or all these bad things keep happening or whatever, the Lord remembers. And the thing is, he doesn't remember because of any good things that we do, okay? It's not that um, we, it's, it's not that God remembers, um, remembers you if you went to church for four Sundays in a row and went to life group for four weeks in a row, even uh, if you're in the Versailles group. Um, it doesn't mean that um, God remembers you if you tithed or if you read your Bible or if you didn't speed or if, you know, you can name all the things, okay? It doesn't mean that God remembers you because you are this upright moral citizen. It means that God remembers and acts on our behalf because he's God, not because of anything that we do, but because that he made this covenant relationship with us. And that's like This is what Exodus is telling us. Like, as we get through Exodus, we'll see all these crazy things that the people of Israel do. And at the end of the book, God gives instructions to make this tabernacle. 
so that his presence can dwell with them. And all of this is not because the Israelites are good. It's because God is good. And like that is what we have to, in my opinion, that is what we have to hold on to with everything that we have. Not because we're good. It's because God is good. So the second thing, the second passage, and hopefully I'm not stealing all that, you know, Will is going to be preaching later. Exodus 3, 7 through 12. Then the Lord told him, told Moses, you can be sure I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries for deliverance from their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I've come to rescue them from the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own good and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites live. The cries of the people of Israel have reached me, and I have seen how the Egyptians oppressed them with heavy task. Now go, for I'm sending you to Pharaoh, and you will lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And the Lord goes on to say, who, or Moses says, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Moses asked God, how can you expect me to lead the Israelites out of Egypt? Then God told him, I will be with you, and this will serve as proof that I've sent you. When you've brought the Israelites out of Egypt, you will return here to worship God at this very mountain. Okay, so the Lord is saying, look, in both of these places, I've seen what my people are going through, and I'm going to lead them out of Israel, or lead them out of Egypt into this good and spacious land. Now, we know it takes like 40 years for them to get there, um, but God doesn't ever give up uh, on his people. And, yeah, let's watch this video, and then I'll wrap it all up. And you guys go. of Exodus. Now, you're probably familiar with this book because of the epic story of Moses leading Israel out of slavery from Egypt. Yeah, but that's just the first half of the book. The second half has Moses giving the Ten Commandments to Israel along with these blueprints for making a sacred tent. Now, right here in the middle is the story that connects these two halves together, and it all takes place at the foot of a famous mountain. Okay, so let's start back at the beginning. So the first thing we have to remember is we're continuing the story from Genesis. Yeah, in Genesis, God promised Abraham that through his family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Genesis ends with Abraham's family down in Egypt. When Exodus begins, 400 years have passed, the family grows and becomes the people group now called Israel. But there's this huge problem because the Israelites are enslaved to this king of the Egyptians, a guy called Pharaoh. This guy is really bad news. Yeah, he's horrible. He, he disregards their humanity. He brutally enslaves them. And he even orders that all of the Israelites' sons should be killed by throwing them into the Nile River. He wants to wipe these people out. He's the worst character in the Bible so far. Here's where we meet an Israelite woman who wants to save her son. And so she does throw him in the river, but safely in this little reed basket. And Pharaoh's daughter finds this baby and takes him as her own. And this is the boy who grows up to become Moses, the man who will rescue Israel from slavery. So Moses grows up and one day, much later in his life, he has this crazy encounter with God where he comes across a bush that's on fire but it isn't actually burning up. And God speaks from the bush, and he appoints Moses as the man he will use to deliver Israel. So Moses goes to Pharaoh to tell him this, this news that God wants his people free. And Pharaoh, he just 
pretty much laughs at him. He's like, who's this god Yahweh? And in fact, he's so offended by this request, he decides to make the Israelites work even harder. So discouraged, Moses goes back to God and says, listen, this plan's not going to work. But God repeats his promise that he's going to rescue them. And in fact, it's right here for the first time in the Bible that we hear the word redemption. It literally just means to purchase a slave's freedom. But God here uses this word to describe what he's going to do for enslaved Israel. And God knows Pharaoh is going to resist. So he sends 10 different plagues, one after another, like turning water into blood, sending all sorts of pests and disease. These plagues are really severe. They are severe, but we need to understand that the story is presenting these as acts of divine justice against one of the worst oppressors in the story of the Bible. And they're all aimed at the purpose of rescuing these enslaved people and defeating the gods of Egypt. This all comes to a climax at the 10th plague, where God's going to kill the firstborn sons across all Egypt. Every house, it's pretty rough. It is, but it's also God's response for how Pharaoh killed the Israelite sons. Now, as you turn the page, you suddenly get two long chapters of detailed instructions for what's essentially throwing a dinner party with a recipe for a lamb. Yeah, but this lamb is super important. God tells the Israelites to pick it out and to prepare it to be eaten. And they're supposed to take its blood and then paint it all over the doorframe of their house. And anyone who is in that house will be spared from this final plague. And so this meal, which is called Passover, it commemorates this key moment in the story where God brings his justice on human evil, but also shows mercy by providing this substitute. This final plague makes Pharaoh angry and he demands that Israel gets out of Egypt, which is great. But suddenly as they leave, Pharaoh changes his mind. He has a change of heart. But on top of that, we're also told that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Why would God do that? Well, what we need to remember is that over and over in this story, Pharaoh has already chosen to harden his own heart. And so at this point, Pharaoh, he's not just evil, he's become monstrously evil. Even his own advisors think that he has gone way too far. And so how is God supposed to deal with such an extreme form of evil? And what we see in this story is that God uses his power to lure evil into its own destruction. Pharaoh and his army are destroyed in the Red Sea as Israel passes into freedom. And after this, we find the very first song of worship in the Bible as the people praise God for redeeming them. And it's in this story that the word salvation is also used for the first time, which means simply to be rescued from danger. Now that they're saved, you would think that everything should be great but the story quickly turns. The Israelites start wandering in the desert. They're tired, hungry, lost. And you start to wonder, what's God doing? What were they saved for? And we learn the answer to that question in the very next story, which ties the two parts of this whole book together. Hi, this is Tim. And this is John. We think one of the best ways to understand the Bible is to look at the design and message of each individual book and how it fits into the overall storyline of the whole Bible. We also make videos that take one theme and trace it through the entire storyline of the Bible from beginning to end. Hey, we want you to meet some of the artists who are working on these videos. The first half of the book of Exodus tells the story of ancient Israel being rescued from slavery. And when people say the Exodus story, 
those are the chapters they're referring to. But the book has a second half where Moses gives the Ten Commandments to Israel along with these instructions about building a sacred tent. And what links these two halves together is this crucial story. The people of Israel, they're out in the middle of nowhere. They find themselves at the foot of this mountain called Sinai. And here, God's presence comes dramatically down in the form of a violent storm cloud. Now, let's stop a second and talk about this concept of God's presence because it's really important for the rest of the book. At the beginning of the Bible, in the Garden of Eden, humanity was in God's presence. They had this close relationship with him and it was good. But humanity rebels and the relationship is fractured and access to God's presence is lost. But God promised Abraham that he would restore his blessing to all of the nations. And that includes this restoration of relationship and access to God's presence. So here at Sinai, God's presence is now right here in front of them. And it's actually quite frightening. And he's here to invite Israel into this unique and close relationship with him. And the word used to describe this relationship is covenant. It's like a legal agreement between God and Israel. And it's unique because up till now, God hasn't asked Israel to do anything in return, just to trust him. But here on this mountain, God is going to ask Israel to do something. A lot of things, actually. He gives them a whole set of laws. that It includes the Ten Commandments. And if they obey these commandments, they will become the people who will represent God to the nations of the world. Like a priest would. Yeah, in fact, that's what God calls them to become, a kingdom of priests. And this is all connected back to the promise to Abraham that his family would become a blessing to the nations. Okay, but obeying these laws is going to be difficult because... There's a lot of them, and they set a really high standard. Though if you think about it, I mean, of anybody in the world who should be able to do it, I mean, it's these people who experienced firsthand God's grace and his power when he rescued them from slavery. And, and they agree to obey the terms, but then they refuse to go into God's presence because it's, well, it's still a bit frightening. And since the people won't go up, Moses goes up to the mountain by himself to meet with God. But God still wants to be with all of his people. And so he says, okay, if the people won't come up here to me, I'll come down off this mountain to be with you all. And that's why he orders Moses to build this elaborate tent as a place where God's presence can be among his people. And that's why the next thing we get is seven chapters of extremely detailed architectural blueprints for this tent. It's really, really really long. But every detail is important and has some kind of symbolic value. For example, there's all this Garden of Eden imagery inside the tent. And it's to remind you that when you're in the tent, you are in God's presence. Then we get another six chapters describing how they built the tent, which is really just repeating the same blueprints word for word. Now let's back up because before the tent is finished, there's this super important story. Moses is coming off the mountain with the Ten Commandments and the blueprints in his hands, and he finds Israel breaking the first two commands of the covenant. Don't have any other gods before me and don't worship idol statues. Right. And so here we are immediately after agreeing to the covenant, they're throwing this ritual party, they're worshiping an idol. And so God says to Moses, you know what? This is, this is not going to work. I should just wipe these people out and start over with you. But Moses reminds God of his promise to Abraham and pleads with God to spare them, which is a really weird conversation. Why would God need to be reminded of something. Yeah, it does seem odd. But this dialogue is inviting us into God's experience of grief and pain due to Israel's actions. And he really could walk away. But instead, this God chooses faithfulness to his own promises, even though he knows it's going to cost him. 
So we come to the end of the book. The tabernacle's built, God's presence comes down off the mountain to fill it, and in the final scene, Moses goes to enter the tabernacle to be in God's presence. But he can't. He's actually not able to go inside, and that's how the book ends. Why can't he go in? That was the whole point. So when Israel worshipped the golden calf, it was like a slap in the face to God's faithfulness. And so Moses can't just waltz into the tent like everything's just fine. There's a deeper problem still in this relationship. Will they ever be able to fix the relationship and go into God's presence? Well, that's what the next book, Leviticus, is all about. Hey, this is John. And this is Tim. Okay, so um, that should give you a good understanding of what Exodus is about. Um, Wrapping up here. A couple of things really frame, will frame the book of Exodus and however long we spend on it for the next couple of however many sermons. Um, The thing they talked about, God's presence, right? We're created uh, in God's image in the Garden of Eden in order to live in right relationship with him. That goes wrong, you know? And then Genesis 3.15 introduces this idea that someone will come, the seed of the woman will come and crush the serpent's head. The rest of the Bible is telling the story of who this head crusher is going to be, you know. Ultimately, we find out that it's Jesus, and Jesus' story points us back to Exodus over and over and over again. He's the new Moses and the better new Moses. He inaugurates the new and better covenant. He's the new and better mediator. He's the great high priest, okay? All of these themes of who Jesus is that the New Testament picks us up, picks up on, we need to understand the book of Exodus in order to understand that. We need to understand this part of our story, the part of our story where we were enslaved in Egypt and then God raised up someone to lead us out of Egypt and invite us into this covenant relationship with himself so that we can, one, live in a good, right relationship with him, and two, show that to other people, Right? What, uh, what Glenn would say, bless, right? Um, begin with prayer, love them, eat with them, serve them, and share the gospel with them. That essentially um, is demonstrating to those outside of this covenant relationship with God that God loves them. God wants to be in this relationship with them, okay? So, this, so please enter into this story um, of Exodus, the story that God tells us about our slavery and our redemption in order that we can be um, a light to those around us. Will, I think, has a couple of announcements.